The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And we have some time to check in together and learn from each other. I often mention at this point, you know, <clears throat> that probably, whether we want to admit it or not, we've learned a thing or two about, I mean, just to put it simply, how ill will and hatred and self-hatred and, you know, all the different ways we close down and disconnect, that that doesn't really work as a strategy of living for living our lives and being a better person, contributing to our own well-being and others. So we kind of know, I think, we probably have universal sense of what doesn't really work. And <clears throat> makes you wonder if the opposite might work. Like instead of being a jerk, instead of being full of self-hatred, instead of being closed down with fear and anxiety, if we cultivate the opposite of the being open in this generous way, kind, caring, appreciative, balanced, as a gift to ourselves and to the world, whether that might be the way to happiness. And what's really astounding is, you know, how rarely we actually check it out. Like, is that true? Well, let me check it out. Let me apply myself and see. And uh, again, the amazing thing is we do, we work pretty hard to try to find happiness. You know how it is. It's like we eat one thing and that doesn't make us happy. We eat something else. That, I mean, we go through all kinds of somersaults finding, trying to find something fun to watch on TV. or. And of course, it doesn't really deliver lasting happiness, those things. Yet we keep thinking, oh, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll get there. And it doesn't deliver. And yet we have a pretty good sense of what doesn't lead to happiness and what might lead to happiness, but interestingly, we don't apply ourselves until we somehow are fortunate enough to see or to, un to uncover a practice, a process. Oh, I can actually formally check this out. I can train my mind to keep the generosity of love, the generosity of goodness, to keep that in mind and to see what happens. Like, what? who do I become? <laughs> How do I relate? And is it, does the heart, the life move in the direction, in a direction that's really trustworthy? And if it is, am I willing to live up to what I'm discovering? Like if it really turns out to be for my well-being and the well-being of others, are we gonna build our life around that, make it a lifestyle instead of something we do once a month or once a year. <laughs> you know, when we happen to be around a Buddhist teacher who's leading us in loving kindness. I mean, what actually keeps us from doing this all day long? Because of course we can do this, we can keep love in mind anywhere. I mean, it's obviously easier when we're sitting still and we got the support, but you could, you know, we could be working doing our thing and we could just remember, oh yeah, 
I care. The heart cares. And that's a generous, beautiful feeling. It may be subtle, but it's a good feeling, no doubt. And when I keep that good feeling of metta in mind, it becomes deeper and stronger, broader, wider, right? It grows. The, the basic fertilizer for metta is recognizing it. We have to have the wherewithal to look and keep it in mind. That's it. And how are we going to give ourselves a, a pep talk that we all we have to do is be interested enough to recognize it, especially when it's quite faint, it hasn't been developed, and then to keep it in mind so that it develops. So this might be a nice topic for us to talk about now together. You know, just examples from people's lives of what situation were you in? Could be years ago, but maybe recently, so whatever will work. But a situation where maybe just because of circumstances, that natural and generous and beautiful quality of metta, that goodness of heart, that kindness of heart was there. And then you noticed it was there. And in noticing it was there, you noticed that it expanded, that it became more resonant, more inclusive, brighter, more, more generous, more good. So you basically, you recognize that it was there in the present moment, that this quality was there in your mind, in your heart, that it was good, that it has this nature to expand and be more inclusive. And in observing all that, it kind of amplifies it. It's like fertilizer. And it's, in a way, you'll see over time, it's really exponential. It's like you get a little momentum and that helps the mind keep it in mind. And because you're keeping it in mind, it gets more momentum, which makes it easier to keep in mind. And because you're keeping it in mind even more, it has more momentum. So it really builds on itself. And you can get, and I'm not kidding, you can actually get beautiful waves of rapture, joy, that is emotionally very healing. Because when we have a sit or you're out in the woods taking a walk or it can happen anywhere where you're recognizing that purity of goodness and you're keeping it in mind, you're not greedy, you're not trying to make something happen, you're simply mindfully aware of the goodness and you'll see it grow and the reason it's so deeply healing to have those deeper experiences of metta is that it, it really is a powerful counterweight to all the self-hatred and negative use that we have about ourselves. Because there in living color, we're noticing something in a funny way. It's not personal, but it's here and now. It's like hard to say that it isn't me, right? So in our conventional language, we say, yeah. That goodness was here. So it doesn't really make sense to think I'm a jerk or I'm just a, a beast or something like that. We see this heart is capable of something that is truly beautiful and good, truly worthy of respect. So it'd be nice to hear from some of you. How have, where have you noticed 
metta organically, naturally showing up in your life? Did you keep it in mind? Could you keep it in mind? When you kept it in mind, what happened? Did you notice it blossoming, so to speak? What was that like? How were you changed by the experience? Yeah, so let's see if that gives people some courage to unmute yourselves and or you can raise your digital hand if you know how to do that. And it'd be nice to hear from a few of you. And of course, any questions about the practice we did tonight is also okay. So don't be shy about any questions you have. Hi, my name is Rob. Hey, Rob. And, uh, I have a specific friend that when I am with this person, it's just so difficult for me to not feel this sense of like kindness and love and it doesn't just like it isn't aimed at this person it's just like flows out of me um I think a lot of it is like it she almost draws it out of me um so that, that, that like shell that sometimes I have around me, it just kind of melts away and like, uh, like a radiance kind of just comes forth, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think with that, I will pass. Yeah, I loved hearing that, Rob. It is contagious in that way. And, you know, you didn't say it exactly this way, but this is my takeaway from your sharing, Rob, is when we're really deeply loved, but not, not deeply in an unusual way, but just in a, the person's not needing us to be different or other than we are, it's contagious. You know, it's sort of that, that openness, that inclusivity, you know, it inspires us because it, it's such a unseen burden to keep throwing people and parts of ourselves out of our heart. We don't realize how stressful it is to be afraid, to be hateful, to be negative, to be dismissive. You know, it seems extraordinary to be open and loving, but actually, <clears throat> What's more of the mystery is how we're able to handle being closed and negative so much of the time. Like, how do we do that? How do we survive that? Yeah. Thanks for getting us going, Rob. Who'd like to go next? Hi, this is Sandy. I was just going to share that I've noticed starting the morning... Um, with and just keeping in mind like the four abodes you know just sort of abiding in the energy of that even for you know 20 minutes or 30 minutes whatever I have in the morning it's just such a, a beautiful way to start the work day in that energy and I see the difference um, in myself and in my work energy 
and it doesn't always it can't it doesn't sustain all the time but just every morning even that just that continuity of feeling that more and more it's just i think that's what came to mind while you were describing that feeling that difference um in the exchanges with families and i don't know that's what came to mind for me and and that and it does fuel itself like i see the importance of starting the day that way I mean, it's one little piece of this bigger practice but that's one thing i've noticed for sure yeah thank you sandy that's a beautiful testimonial and uh I, the image that came to mind when you were talking about is sharing your practice like that with us is uh, in sort of cosmological terms, metta in the early Buddhist tradition especially, it's considered like a taste of heaven. And you know how it is for us humans, we don't need a sort of cosmology of heaven and hell. It's fine if you like that, sort of imagining these different realms of existence. It's good to keep an open mind, who knows. But what we do know for sure is that when we turn toward metta, when we keep it in mind, when the heart actually gets some momentum, it's there, it's real. Even though we're still here in this body, on this planet, with our duties and responsibilities, that's an, a good way to talk about it. It feels like we're in heaven. Even though everything's the same, what's not the same is the way the heart's relating. It's relating with metta, with this beautiful goodness, and it feels heavenly. And the opposite is also true, right? And this, we know, we should have great conviction when the opposite of metta, when ill will and self-hatred and shame and fear and negativity have gotten triggered and the mind is identified, taking those heavy states of mind personally, we feel like we're in hell. We are in hell. That is hell, right? Because the mind, for some time at least, is imprisoned in that those cycles of, you know, one negative thought begetting the next negative thought. Just like when we're in a really beautiful metta, loving-kindness space, one thought of metta, one experience of metta begets the next one. It feeds on itself, like Sandy was talking about. It creates some momentum. So then, then this uh, heaven and hell thing doesn't seem very abstract. It's real. It's like, okay, I think I prefer heaven. <laughs> what are the causes and conditions that support it. The first is we need to have this initial, maybe even it's borrowed faith, but we have to have this initial confidence that this heart is capable of real goodness. Goodness that helps this heart transcend hell, <laughs> hellish states, negative states, stingy, irritable, bored, hateful, shameful, fearful states of mind. What helps us lift out of those hellish states of mind? Can we, or do we think we just, see part of being in hell is thinking we deserve it or thinking there's no option 
That's all those. I've already played all my cards. I'm in hell. That's part of being in hell is thinking there's no way out. There's a fun story. It's, I don't, you know, don't take it literally necessarily, but it's, it's still an instructive story. There are many, many, they're called Jataka tales. They arose after the time of the Buddha, but they're sort of like people, you know, people, we love our stories. So after the time of the Buddha, they started telling all these stories about the Buddha's previous lives. And it kind of made this for this very rich sort of storytelling and a lot uh, in the many centuries in Buddhist cultures, you know, these are the stories that children would be told. So one of those Jataka tales where the Buddha was in a hell realm, right? So he was had some bad karma, got reborn, he was in a hellish realm. And, uh, you know, just you can imagine with our human imagination, we can imagine hell, you know, and all the, the hot hell or the cold hell or the pointy hells in Buddhism. It's, it's quite diverse how many sort of hellish states we might end up in. So anyway, the Buddha was in one of those hellish places. And uh, you can just imagine, you know, a bunch of folks having to drag something really heavy through fires and noxious fumes and, you know, like some hellish, terrible thing. And the person that was next to the Buddha fell. And in that moment, instead of hating the fact that the Buddha was in hell, he had compassion for the person who fell and was being beaten by whoever runs hells, you know, the prison guards of hell. And he, he and immediately because that state, that generous state of compassion doesn't fit in hell. So his heart immediately left hell. And the the point of that story is not to take it literally, but to understand that even when we're in the most difficult state, the moment the heart starts to care with kindness and compassion and forgiveness and patience, and maybe a sense of humor, like any of those sort of um, aspects of, of love, then we're no longer in a hellish state. It's never that flip. We might feel, we might tell ourselves a story. I'm in such a bad state. I'm about 10 billion miles away from a happy state of mind. And then that seems very believable. Like I'm literally some distance away from my a good state of mind, a happy state of mind. But that's a wrong idea. That's a wrong view. It's not true. It's just an it's just a turning of the mind from hating the pain, hating myself, hating the world, blaming myself, blaming the world, whatever, which just amplifies the hellishness of the state of mind to, oh, it's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard. This is one of the times it's really hard. And I care about that. I care enough to be at least honest with myself that it's really hard right now. And see, already, that's that heart is already in a uplifting, generous place. Just to have that little understanding of acknowledging, hey, this is really hard. 
right? And that's, we get that from a good friend sometimes, you know, we're in a difficult place and the friend comes over and says, oh, this is really hard. You're in a, this is a really difficult thing you're going through. They don't even need to say, I care about you. Just that acknowledgement that it's hard comes from that place of love. Yeah, who'd like to go next? What other examples or questions that folks have to share with the larger group? Yeah, Emily. Yes. Um, so I guess kind of from just thinking about what you just said, um, I have someone in my life who I can't remove from my life where there's a lot of conflict and uncertainty um, and I've been really trying to generate a spirit of compassion towards this person. Um, but I still have a lot of negative feelings <laughs> and it's almost like at the same time I'm feeling compassion, but also contempt or also, you know, and I don't know if that means I'm not enough in the spirit of compassion. Like I'm not fully in that meta or fully in the positive because I'm maybe forcing it too much. I don't know, you know, just how to kind of, um, I guess fully embrace that in a way and move away from those negative feelings. Yeah. Well, a lot of the time, and I don't know if this is true for you, but a lot of the time when we have a difficult person in our lives, um, we want to move too quickly to having some kindness or compassion or forgiveness toward that person. And we might neglect the fact that it's really hard for me to have this person in my life and really work on, can I have compassion and tenderness for myself for having this person in my life? And we don't have to presume that that person's bad. All we know is the direct truth, which is it's hard having this person in my life. How do I know? Because I can feel right now my heart being tight about this person, closed down, don't want to be around them, afraid of them, or whatever it is you experience. So, you know, I guess the question would be, why aren't you, why is it the heart that wants to practice turning toward how it is for you to have this person in your life. Oh, it's hard. Well, how can I, can I include that part of me that's finding this hard? Can I get close? Because it's not easy being a human being and being exposed to people who are hard to be around for whatever reasons. It's not easy. That's a, that exposure, like in some situations we don't have a choice. They're a member of our family or they're at our job scene and we, we really don't have too many options to keep away from them. And it really, for whatever reason, is pushing, bringing up, causing a lot of difficulty in our heart. Ah, this exposure, this vulnerability is really hard to bear. I don't like it. And I care about that. May this heart be at ease, even when I can't control the conditions. May I find ways. So really stay there. And you might find that if you stay there 
really working on your own wish for well-being, wish for safety, you might find at times that there's so much, let's just call it self-love, that it just spills over and naturally starts to include this other person. I don't know if that feels relevant or if you have more you wanted to add, Emily. No, I think that feels very relevant. It seems like a good place to start. Yeah. And that's generally the way the Buddha and uh, in the tradition we teach this practice that it it doesn't matter where we start, we should start where it's easy or where the attention is naturally drawn and build and let the momentum cause that goodness of heart to spill over that upwelling. Just you'll notice the naturalness of including more and more and eventually even those people that are the hardest to include. But we, you're right, we don't force it. Um, and sometimes, like, I might go <clears throat> to having metta, loving-kindness toward all beings, which for me is easier than some of the specific difficult people. But I'll just remind myself that when I'm feeling like, ah, oh, you know, it's just not easy being a human being or any kind of being, and I care about all of you and wish well for all of you, and then I and I know that it means the people that I have a hard time with. You too. You too. I don't want to bring you to mind specifically, but you get to belong in that category of all beings. You're there. I know you're there. And I'm not going to, you know, leave anybody out. Thank you, Emily, for sharing with us. Other thoughts that come to mind? Remember how useful it is to hear people's little testimonials about where they just noticed this naturalness of love, of kindness, and noted, and just had the wherewithal to be interested in it. That's really the key, because of course, it comes up from time to time, it's not that rare, but to be interested in it. Joan, did you want to say something? I feel it advanced stage of life, I can feel a lot of compassion for people most of the time, even specific people troubled, people troubling. But what I feel is I'm mad at God. I'm mad that the world is so hard. And that anger keeps me from feeling the joy. And I, I've just been trying to observe it and see. I think I really believe that if I was very, very good and people really tried very hard and I worked on it, so that we could really make a dent in the suffering and the pain in the world. And now I see the things I've worked on because of how the world is going, those things are actually being undermined very deeply. And I'm getting close to the end of my life and I feel like, damn it, I I want it to be different. And I... I um, and yet it's a comfort, the Buddhist belief, there just is imperfection, there is suffering, and I can let go of that old belief that somehow it's perfectible. But I still feel this stone in my heart that I was promised something better. So. Yeah. I think, I think what, what I would say to that, Joan, is uh, I wouldn't, 
I we need to be careful. There there really is a resolution of suffering. So it's it's I want to be careful because it is sort of what we say that there will always be dukkha. But that there's a caveat to that, which is the problem is we don't really understand dukkha, the dukkha that is there is. Like even the ordinary dukkha of being afraid of getting old and dying or being afraid of these terrible cycles of oppressive action in the world are just going to keep happening over and over again until, you know, the whole thing implodes or something. So part of the, uh, what's missing is, you know, w w there's a very, uh, it's very easy for us to draw conclusions and not stay humble and curious and open as if we see the whole picture. And uh, I'm not trying to convince you that I, I see the whole picture, but I'm pretty clear that, that I'm not seeing the whole picture, that my ordinary ways of, like when I get in that place that I heard you speaking from, which I can get into, you know, pretty frequently, you know, like totally screwed up the world and it's, you know, it's terrible and it can feel nihilistic. But I, I really catch more and more now when, whenever that happens, like that, that's just, that's just my mind pro making a projection and clinging to it. And the thing is, there's so much goodness and striking beauty even at the same time, there's so much horror and terribleness. And the thing is, our mind doesn't like it kind of that contradiction. And the, and the other thing that we know for sure is that when I'm not afraid of the world as it actually is, and when I show up in a generous way and a loving way and a sense of humor way, Somehow the the negativity, those little negative vortexes that were all going to hell, they just don't make sense when I'm in that balanced place, that open and loving place. You know, I know it it sounds like a terrible cliche that we need <laughs> the world to be such a mess because it brings out so many beautiful qualities in human beings. It also brings out really terrible qualities in human beings. So I don't want to kind of make it sound like a cliche, but that's actually our experience. Whenever we go from resisting or hating God, like you said, Joan, or um, hating ourselves or hating others who are doing terrible things, whenever we turn away from that and open in a just a loving way and responsive way. It's just amazing that everything seems workable, even though people are suffering. And the thing is, we don't, it's always, 
Yeah, the, the question is like, what do we do with suffering? As opposed to there shouldn't be suffering. The spiritual answer is how do we relate to suffering? The kind of materialist point of view is how do we stop it? <laughs> and a lot of the suffering in the world is because people are trying to get to the place where there isn't suffering. You know, when you think about Ukraine, you know, I read an article recently that, you know, even though there is all this talk about Russian uh, and Putin having this idea that this is part of the motherland, it's always been part of Russia, this article was just making the point, it's much more cynical about getting the oil and natural gas fields that are in Ukraine, you know, and the places that are really trying to capture or it's just the natural resources that are there in eastern Ukraine. As if the powers that be in Russia don't have enough money put aside already, right? And this is the thing, you know, people are looking to be safe. And we do terrible things when we want to be safe, when we look for safety in ways that don't actually make us safe. It makes us suffer. So part of, you know, when we say that we open to the world as it is, the complexity, the miserable, hateful sides, the beautiful, good sides, when we really open to it, we literally create heaven. And we directly experience it. And we see that in little moments when we have a nice interaction with a clerk at a store we just we we just aren't in the habit of really seeing exactly what's happening like oh this is great and it's in this world that is clearly not great this little and then it really begs the question well maybe the mind the heart can be this radically open all the time what's in the way of that So I don't know if that's going to be useful, but just my reflections on your comment. And it's the age-old question. And we won't answer it philosophically. It will be experientially. We, we experience the resolution of that question. What are we going to do about suffering? The enormity of suffering. Other thoughts? We have time for one or two more before we end our time. Um, I just wanted to share something today. I um, was driving um, and turning a corner. There's a homeless person on the corner. And as I turned, just out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone handing him something. And his face, when he saw that someone was handing him something, I almost think he jumped and this big smile came across his face and I felt this overwhelming actual love for that whole interaction. And it just, it was just, I don't know, it just really made my afternoon. And um, I struggle with what Joan's talking about. Um, and then yet when I see the kindness and I 
And I'm hoping that it is waking up the goodness that you mentioned, Mark, from people when we all see what's happening in the world. Um, I, I just am um, grateful for those moments. So just wanted to share that. Thanks, Carolyn. It really matters what we pay attention to. And even when we're looking at one thing, there's different ways to be looking or receiving that experience. What is the mind highlighting? And the thing is, having a negative view, it's very juicy. It, it kind of does something in a, in a goic way, like, um, I don't know, maybe some of you caught uh, when I was driving here to the retreat center, um, forget who it was, was interviewing the woman who wrote a book about conspiracy theories and people who believe the world is flat. It was on Minnesota Public Radio midday sometime. And, uh, and the point she was making in her research of people who hold these conspiracy theories that many of us would just find like outlandish, like how could someone think that? Um, but there's something really juicy about like thinking that we see something that's so uh, unacceptable, like that people don't get it. And we do that around suffering too, like this is not okay. You know, that these people with power are doing these things to people who don't have power. And, uh, but actually it's a kind of um, indulging in the drama. It can be an indulging in the drama of horror. Just like we can indulge in the drama of goodness too. That our minds are capable and in, of indulging in anything, like turning anything, any human experience into a self-project. So we have to be on the lookout. And by self-project, I mean a, a way of thinking, a way of being that separates, as opposed to a way of being that brings us in to community and into connection. And that's a good way... Like when we see some of the real horror and, and suffering in the world, do we relate in a way that's separating and isolating? Or do we, we relate in a way that's including? And that's kind of what Carolyn's example is just, it's like, because I could have seen a person that looked like they didn't have a home and I could have spun about like how our economy works and how it's unjust and people, you know, and it would have been, but in terms of my subjective experience, I'd be really isolating my heart and turning the world into good and bad. And yeah, just fragmenting my own experience. And then that reverberates out. Or we can just appreciate a moment of goodness and notice how it begins to reverberate. Carolyn probably had a different kind of afternoon just because of that simple experience and seeing it and letting it in. Right? It tenderizes and opens. Any last thought? Time for one more person to share some learning or question that is emerging. I thought of something when Joan was talking that you had 
I don't know, said in a talk once, and it was um, made me think of times in the last few years when I thought, wow, this is just too much. It's just too much. And um, and I think in some kind of guided talks, you had said, we can really look, though, closer and say, is it too much? Am I feel for this moment? Am I here? You know, can I get touch into the breath? No, I, you know, I'm still here. I, haven't, <laughs> I don't know. So maybe connect with that kind of idea of um, grounding ourselves to um, as we start to get into those moments that can spin us into that place. Yeah, that's such a powerful reminder, Sandy. And I, I for me, I'm, I'm going to hear that and I'm going to resolve in my mind right now that when I'm reading the news and especially when I'm about to read an article that might trigger that in me, you know, the negativity and the judgment to like, oh, maybe, maybe the impact of reading about this injustice or this latest horror, maybe what I'm feeling, I can actually feel. Maybe I don't need to be afraid of my heart being sensitive to this injustice, to the suffering. And maybe that will change, like, what happens going forward. Well, let's finish by doing um, the Four Quarters chant. I'll put it in the chat for everyone. Just a nice way, and it's really nice to learn this, because I find it really useful I change it a little like I did during the guided sit, this four quarters chant. But to be able to recite it, some version of it in your own mind, I find it. And it's just like channeling the confidence of the Buddha, I find. And people have been chanting these words. You find it in these particular words in several of the discourses that were recorded from the Buddhist teachings. So we can just set these four boundless qualities in motion. I will provide, I will pervade one quarter with the mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, I will provide, I will pervade, I'm sorry, <laughs> I will abide, pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. I will abide. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.